Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. If you visit the city of New Orleans, Louisiana, you will be regaled by stories of the magnanimous Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen of New Orleans. Join any of the hundreds of walking tours of the city and tour guides will weave tales of fact and fiction as you travel down the narrow streets of the French Quarter and meander through the uneven grounds of Nola's famous cemeteries. While walking along Bourbon Street, you can stop into Marie Laveau's House of Voodoo Shop, a small store at the corner of Bourbon and St. Anne, about two and a half blocks down from where the real Marie Laveau used to live. When you walk under the hand-painted sign that reads, Strange Gods, Strange Altars, and into the slightly grimy, dimly lit shop, you find a tight two-room store, full from floor to ceiling with talismans, blessed chicken feet, oils, herbs, incense, cigars, t-shirts, jewelry, altar statues, and all other manner of tourist enticements and magical paraphernalia that you can dream of. A porcelain statue of the revered voodoo queen herself is readily available for purchase as well. Unable to visit New Orleans? No worries. Just turn on the TV and watch a highly fictionalized account of Marie Laveau in American Horror Story, Coven, and Apocalypse, played by Angela Bassett. Or do a simple Google search and find pages and pages of blog posts and articles mixing snippets of fact with a heavy dose of legend for some interesting and entertaining reading. Since her death in 1881, Marie Laveau has morphed from a respected and charitable neighbor or a she-devil and mysterious voodoo queen, depending on who's talking, and into a saint of strong black feminist womanhood. How do we separate popular history from fact? Today we are digging into the real life of Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen of New Orleans, and navigating the buried line between fact and fiction. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We're so honored to have listeners all over the world, a global community that's reflected in our incredible auger and excavator level patrons. Jesse in Florida, Lauren and Edward in Ohio, Denise in Albany, Maddie in Texas, Maggie in Oregon, did I say Oregon weird? Maggie in Oregon, Danielle in Idaho, Lisa in British Columbia, Agnes in Iceland, Iris in Washington, Maria in Germany, and Colin, Susan, and Peggy right here with us in Buffalo. Thank you from the bottom of our historian hearts. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. (laughs) 
It's a cold case like no other. In 1888, five women were brutally murdered in a London slum. Attacks so violent, the killer earned himself a nickname, Jack the Ripper. But everything you think you know about Jack and those women is wrong. On Bad Women, historian Hallie Rubenhold uncovers the real lives of Jack's victims, revealing discrimination that put them in Jack's path. Misogyny women still face today. The show challenges established theories about the murders, causing many supposed Ripper experts to see red. Listen to Bad Women wherever you get your podcasts. Marie Laveau was the most famous and most powerful of New Orleans voodoo practitioners. She was a beautiful and smart woman who used her role as a hairdresser to learn the secrets of the city's white elite, which she then used to her advantage. She sold charms and pouches of griss told fortunes, and gave advice to New Orleans residents of every social strata. She obtained secret information about her wealthy patrons by scaring their servants who she either paid or cured of mysterious ailments. However, even though some stories paint her as a charlatan, most maintain that she was indeed a strong voodoo priestess. Legend has it that all levels of city government, from the police to the mayor, were in her thrall, and Laveau even had the power to save condemned prisoners from execution. Marie Laveau quickly became the voodoo queen of New Orleans, taking charge of the public voodoo ceremonies held at Congo Square and in private residences. She ran other operations at the Maison Blanche by Lake Pontchartrain, which some said was built for secret voodoo meetings and liaisons between white men and black women. Some elements of the Laveau legend are more salacious than others. Most are the results of the white fever dream of imagination that justified turning black women into others and thus outside the bounds of respectable womanhood. Accusations of prostitution, procurement, human sacrifice, and cannibalism were superstitious hype that sold newspapers and justified segregation and white violence. An editorial in the Picayune New Orleans newspaper from 1870 claimed, quote, a young white girl, partially insane, was found in the midst of an assembly of fetish worshipers chanting a horrible jargon. The article further claimed, the believers in this strange superstition indulge in strange orgies with singing and dancing and sacrifices, which sometimes include human victims. So there you have it, sex and violence, the bread and butter of clickbait in the 19th century. Laveau was said to have a large python snake that she wore wrapped around her shoulders, fittingly named Grand Zombie. Some stories have her battling with other would-be rivals for her queenship, Others paint her as the protege and then the rival of earlier queens, Sanité Dede and Marie Salopé. However, Carolyn Morrow Long states that neither of these other voodoo queens can be located in the archival record. Other stories have placed Laveau with a rival-slash-lover named Dr. John, a purported charlatan who swindled unsuspecting dupes out of their money. Think Dr. Facilier from Disney's The Princess and the Frog. As Laveau aged, the story goes that her and her daughter perpetrated a shady switch by passing off the younger Marie as the mother to give the impression that Marie Laveau's powers were so great that she did not age. 
Most of these stories postulate that Marie II was less than upstanding and that she acted as a procurus, enticing naive black women into bed with white men for a fee. Also, some stories say that Marie, too, was actually the hairdresser and that she was the Marie who used her unsuspecting client's secrets as a way to extort money disguised as supernatural powers. Wow, that's a mess. <clears throat> I mean, like, histor- historiographically and historically seems like a mess. Not not your mm-hmm. not your paragraph. No, it is. And hopefully, hopefully after all this, I then make it clear that that's all Hooey. that I like. Yeah, <laughs> but we'll see. Okay. Um, During the latter half of the 20th century and the first decade of the 21st, tourists and acolytes would write X's on Laveau's mausoleum in St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 and leave her offerings of cigarettes, fruit, beads, and coins in hopes that Laveau would grant their wishes. The St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 dates to 1789 and is the oldest cemetery still standing in the city. Inside are hundreds of 18th and 19th century above-ground mausoleums holding the city's most prominent dead, including Homer Plessy. Burials need to be above ground in New Orleans because the water table is so high. You don't want all of that dead people water leaking into the street. We do not. (laughs) At times, Laveau's mausoleum would be covered with crosses or X's written in red brick from nearby tombs with Sharpie markers and with red lipstick. In voodoo, the cross, or X, is the point where the living and the dead meet. Her tomb would have to be periodically whitewashed and cleaned, and offerings gathered up on a weekly and sometimes daily basis, lest the pile get too high. Other people believe that Laveau is not interred in Cemetery No. 1, but instead lies in the Wishing Wall in St. Louis Cemetery No. 2, and so they mark crosses and leave offerings there as well. Marie Laveau is part of New Orleans folklore. She's seen dancing in cemeteries, flying around the city, and walking down streets of the French Quarter. She's even been known to slap those who are unfamiliar with her. One story has a man named Elmore Lee Banks who reported he saw Laveau's ghost in the mid-1930s. As Banks stood in a pharmacy telling the clerk what he needed, the clerk's eyes grew large and he, quote, ran like a fool into the back of the store, unquote. Confused as to what was going on, Banks turned around and looked at the old woman standing next to him. She started laughing and said to Banks, don't you know me? He replied that he, in fact, did not know her, and she promptly slapped him upside the head and, quote, jumped up in the air and went whizzing out the door and over the top of the telephone wires. She passed right over the graveyard wall and disappeared, end quote. Banks promptly passed out and was awoken to the pharmacy clerk pouring whiskey on his face to wake him up. Son, you just got slapped by the queen of voodoos. <laughs> Should I say it in a 1930s accent? Like, what's the big idea? Hey, son. <laughs> sonny old Hey. <laughs> hey, Sonny. You just done been slapped by the queen of the voodoos. <laughs> that was good. We need Jason in here to do it. He's really good at that. At that uh, what is it? What do they call it? The, in- Atlantic? the Mid-Atlantic? Yeah. Mid-Atlantic yeah. accent. Um, not to mention, the, like, whiskey in your face would probably really f- hurt. <laughs> like, Yeah, if it's, like, in your eyes. And- <laughs> oh, my God. So much of the Laveau story is frankly made up. Other parts are hard to piece together. Historians Carolyn Mara Long, 
Johanna Fandrich and Martha Ward, as well as anthropologist Denise Alvarado, have done painstakingly detailed looks into Laveau's genealogy using many documents previously unused. Additionally, oral histories collected by the Louisiana Writers Project, or the LWP, which was a local branch of the Federal Writers Project created during the Great Depression under the New Deal Works Projects Administration, help fill in and sometimes substantiate or deny commonly held assumptions about Laveau. So let's try to parse out the real Laveau from the legend with some historical context. In 1682, the French explorer Robert Cavalier de la Salle claimed the region Louisiana to honor King Louis XIV of France. The area around New Orleans and the parishes around Lake Pontchartrain became a colony of Spain by the Treaty of Fontainebleau in 1762. In 1800, Napoleon Bonaparte negotiated a secret treaty with Spain's Charles IV, which ceded the Louisiana colony back to France in exchange for a small kingdom in northern Italy. Louisiana became a formal colony of France again in 1803. However, France's defeat in the 13-year-long slave revolt in Saint-Domingue made French officials decide that new colonial holdings in the New World may not be such a good move. Napoleon promptly sold Louisiana to the United States for $15 million. The Louisiana Purchase included the present state of Louisiana, but also all of the land from the Gulf Coast up to the Canadian border between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. Anglo-Americans swarmed into New Orleans after the Louisiana Purchase and encountered a diverse Roman Catholic, mostly French-speaking city of Creoles where racial boundaries were fluid. Creole meant any person, regardless of race, who was born in a French or Spanish colony, as opposed to being born in the mother country. Creoles, both black and white, free people of color, and enslaved people all lived and worked in the city and intermingled often. Anglo-Americans were outraged at the racial mixing that was common to New Orleans. They viewed Roman Catholicism as idolatry and voodoo as heathenism. During the 1790s and into the first decade of the 19th century, thousands of refugees fled the fighting and political upheaval in Saint-Domingue and went to eastern seaboard cities like New York, Philadelphia, and Savannah. Many made their way down to Louisiana. 30,000 people fled to Cuba, but in 1809, when they refused to swear allegiance to Spain, they were forced out of Cuba and made their way to the French-speaking port of New Orleans. Nearly 10,000 Saint-Domingue immigrants arrived in New Orleans in 1809 alone. These immigrants were a racially diverse group, which included natives of France and whites and free people of color. Many of them also brought their slaves. This influx of people from Saint-Domingue, who shared many cultural similarities with the Creole population of New Orleans, caused strain among the Anglo-Protestants who were worried about the presence of so many free people of color. Marie Laveau was born in the middle of this upheaval, and throughout her childhood and teenage years, she watched New Orleans change from a racially integrated Creole community that spoke French and was predominantly Roman Catholic to an increasingly segregated city as more Protestant Anglo-Americans migrated into Louisiana. Marie Catherine Laveau was born on September 10, 1801, to a free woman of color, Marguerite Henry and Charles Laveau, a successful free man of color who was in the business of real estate and slave trading. 
Charles was said to be the son of a white man, probably Charles Laveau Trudeau. <laughs> I love that that rhymes. Um, it's cute. The Surveyor General of Louisiana mm-hmm. under the Spanish government and a free woman of color also named Marie Laveau. Laveau's maternal grandmother was named Catherine, and after buying her own freedom from enslavement in roughly 1795, she purchased land on St. Anne Street. Soon she had the house built where Marie Laveau would later live and raise her family. The land where the home was now houses another home built in the early 20th century. It's located on the uptown side of St. Anne Street at the upper edge of the French Quarter. It's roughly one block to Congo Square, adjacent to what is Louis Armstrong Park, and within a short walk to St. Louis Cathedral, the St. Louis Cemeteries, and the Parish Prison, which were all places Laveau was known to have frequented. Marie Laveau's mother, Marguerite, was born a slave in roughly 1783 and was freed by her owner around 1790. Marie's white father, Charles, was not acknowledged on her birth certificate, but he did acknowledge Marie as the daughter in other documents, giving her land and jewelry upon her marriage to Jacques Perry, a free man of color, in 1819. It's interesting to note that Marie Laveau's birth certificate was not found until 2001, finally putting to rest the rumor that she was over 100 years old when she died. The certificate proves that she was 79 when she passed. It also put to rest the story that she may have been born in Haiti and not in New Orleans by showing that she was baptized in St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans. Marie's grandmother, Catherine, was listed as her godmother. According to the French and Creole tradition, firstborn daughters were often named Marie, and the second name was often the name of their godmother. Thus, Marie's full name was Marie Catherine Laveau. This tradition, coupled with the fact that name spellings often went between French, Spanish, and American in New Orleans documentation, often makes it hard to follow the who's who through the archival record. Laveau's marriage to Jacques Perry took place in 1819 at the St. Louis Cathedral. They had at least one daughter together and possibly two. Perry disappears from the record around 1824. Some say he left and went back to Saint-Domingue, where he was originally from. Others say he died in 1822. Long found documentation that seems to confirm that he died, perhaps during a yellow fever epidemic. But of course, the uncertainty of his disappearance also adds to Laveau's mystique. After Paris' disappearance, or more likely death, uh, Marie went by the name Widow Paris or Widow Paris. Because most other people called her that too, it lends support to the fact that her husband died and people knew about it. Later, Marie entered into an agreement known as Plassage with a wealthy white man named Christophe Glapion. Plassage was a system in place in antebellum New Orleans where young women of color became a placé of a white gentleman who entered into a financial agreement with her mother or guardian for her financial security. Plassage arrangements were common among free women of color during the antebellum period because Louisiana's anti-miscegenation laws prevented legal marriages between white people and people of color. Therefore, many couples lived in these types of arrangements, which allowed white men to live with and support black and mixed-race women and their families. Glapion was 30 years Laveau's senior, but by all accounts it was a love match, and the pair had seven children together from 1827 to 1838. Oh my god, that's so many children. 
in 11 years. That's a lot. Interracial domestic partnerships were fairly common in antebellum New Orleans, often consisting of a white man and a non-white woman, and often including racially mixed children. Long argues that archival evidence shows that many of the unions were long-term committed relationships that resembled legal marriages. Often records of these unions can be found in church records where white fathers might be listed as a legitimate father of racially mixed children. The Laveau legend attributes Laveau's home ownership to her voodoo abilities. In one telling, a wealthy man petitioned Laveau for help when his son was accused of murder. The man asked Laveau for his son's freedom, and in payment, he would grant Laveau a house on St. Anne Street. According to the story, Laveau spent weeks praying to voodoo Iowa, or spirits, and Catholic saints in St. Louis Cathedral. While in prayer, she held three guinea peppers under her tongue. When the spirits saw her willingness to suffer from the hot peppers, they decided to help her. On the morning of the trial, Laveau placed the guinea peppers under the judge's seat. The man's son was proclaimed innocent, and Marie gained the house on St. Anne. Um, I wonder how hot guinea peppers are. I don't know if I don't know if I know what those are. They are supposed to be very, very hot. Hmm. Of course, the reality was less theatrical, but indicative of the long tradition of women of color gaining some financial independence in antebellum New Orleans. The cottage on St. Anne Street was built for Catherine Henry, Marie Laveau's grandmother, sometime after she purchased the lot in 1798. After Catherine Henry's death, Marie Laveau and her cousins decided to sell the cottage to pay their grandmother's expenses. Glapion, Laveau's common-law husband, purchased the property and deeded the cottage to the minor children he and Marie produced, giving everyone in the family legal right to live there. This was a way to keep the house and the family and a way to circumvent miscegenation laws that barred intermarriage between whites and blacks and made it almost impossible for black women to inherit money and land from their common-law husbands. Laws making it difficult for white and black relationships to inherit property and money often succeeded in stopping white property from falling into black hands, thus the need for workarounds. Nearly all of the Creole population of New Orleans was Roman Catholic. The majority of the congregants of St. Louis Cathedral, this is where Laveau was a parishioner, where the records of her birth, her children's births and deaths, marriages, etc. are found, were females of African descent. Travelers often noted the racially and ethnically mixed congregation who worshipped together and sat on the same pews together and shared the same beds, too. Laws governing enslaved people in New Orleans, from its time as a French colony to a Spanish colony and back to French and then as part of America, gave enslaved people Sunday afternoons and holidays off. They would spend their free time cultivating gardens, fishing, and other things that would give them goods to sell and trade. Many would have their Sunday Mass at St. Louis Cathedral or St. Augustine's Church and afterwards walk over to the public square with their goods to set up market. Beginning in 1817, a traveling circus from Havana named the Congo Circus set up in the public square during the winter season. From then on, the public square was known as either Circus Square or more often Congo Square. Weekly gatherings on Sunday afternoons included a vibrant market alongside drumming and dance circles that included enslaved people, free people of color, and Creoles, both black and white. It is here where many say New Orleans voodoo flourished. In New Orleans in the 18th and 19th centuries, slaves, Creoles, and free people of color practiced a type of voodoo that incorporated African, Catholic, and Native American religious practices. 
According to Long, in every French, Spanish, and Portuguese slave-owning colony of the Caribbean and South America, there evolved some synthesis of African traditional beliefs with Roman Catholicism. New Orleans voodoo, like Haitian voodoo, Cuban Santeria, and Brazilian candomblé, was an organized religion with a complex theology, a pantheon of deities and spirits, a priesthood, and a congregation of believers. New Orleans voodoo is the only Afro-Catholic religion to emerge in North America. The Afro-Catholic religions that evolved in the New World colonies are derived from the Fon and Yoruba people of West Africa and the Congo of Central Africa, who were enslaved in great numbers in Louisiana, Saint-Domingue, Cuba, and Brazil. Historian Ina Johanna Fandrich argues that the prevalence of New Orleans female voodoo practitioners can be traced to West and Central Africa. She maintains that, like its Haitian counterpart, New Orleans voodoo is a hybrid, combining several cultural origins, West and Central African, European, and Native American, into a viable new form, but its basic patterns remain African. In the decade before the Civil War, the color line hardened as white New Orleanians' fears increased and places where slaves, free people of color, and white people gathered together were strictly policed. Laws were passed that restricted unauthorized gatherings where the races freely mixed together. In April of 1858, the city council passed a law to ensure, quote, the South and the safety of the institution of slavery, end quote, by requiring that any Christian worship must be conducted under the supervision of a white minister. The raucous Congo Square assemblies began to get smaller as larger markets opened nearby, but what really stopped the festivities was a city ordinance that prohibited outdoor dances, drumming, and the playing of musical instruments without permission from the mayor. Congo Square was subsequently planted with young sycamore trees, which are now big, beautiful trees, by the way, um, but which impeded the large groups of dancers. Marie Laveau is said to have been the voodoo queen of New Orleans between the years of 1820 to 1869. However, there are very few mentions of Laveau in newspapers during this time. What we do know comes from newspaper accounts of police raids on voodoo ceremonies and from the accounts collected by the Louisiana Writers Project. Police regularly raided voodoo ceremonies and arrested participants for unlawful mixed assembly of white and black people during the 1850s. It is likely that Laveau was swept up in a police raid on a voodoo ceremony in 1850 when a group of women were arrested. The Picayune newspaper wrote the arrested women were, quote, in the habit of frequenting a house back in the woods near St. Bernard's Canal, where they go through a great variety of superstitious rites and a meager style of dress. The large quantity of nonsensical paraphernalia was confiscated, said the article. A few days later, another raid was logged in the third municipality's guard book. A group of women was arrested, quote, at Milnberg on late Pontchartrain in a house of ill fame for being in contravention of ordinances prohibiting slaves, free people of color, and white persons assembling together, end quote. So in non-legalese, the races were mixing, right? Um, a week later, a group of women, including Marie Laveau, took the officers of the third municipality guards to civil court, claiming they'd been illegally arrested while practicing their religion. They claimed they had been falsely imprisoned, improperly fined, and subject to assault and battery. Right. So I, you can probably read between the lines there of what they really experienced when they were arrested, right? Yes. Yeah, pretty violent. I imagine sure. it was sexual assault, possibly even. I yeah. don't know. 
I would imagine too. Uh, the Picayune reported that, quote, Marie Laveau, otherwise Widow Paris or Paris, FWC, which meant Free Women of Color, the head of the voodoo women, yesterday appeared before recorder uh, Suznu and charged Watchman Abrero of the Third Municipality Guards with having by fraud come into possession of a statue of a virgin worth $50, end quote. A later article described the statue as, quote, a quaintly carved figure resembling something between a centaur and an Egyptian mummy. Long postulates this sounds reminiscent of figural images called Nikisi, carved by the Congolese. In 1859, a woman identified in the Picayune as Marie Clarice Laveau was summoned before the recorder's court for disturbing the neighborhood. Marie Clarice would have been Marie Catherine Laveau or her daughter, Marie Eucharist. The paper wrote, quote, Marie and her wenches were continuously disturbing her neighbor's peace and that of the neighborhood with their fighting and obscenity and infernal singing and yelling, end quote. It went on to say this exemplified, quote, the hellish observance of the mysterious rites of voodoo, one of the worst forms of African paganism, end quote. Furthermore, they just had to titillate readers by alluding to debauchery by stating, quote, a description of the orgies would never do to put in a respectable print, end quote. <laughs> we're way too respectable to talk about this, but we're going to talk about it a but little bit. But we're going to talk about it. St. <laughs> John's Eve, or the Eve of the Feast of St. John the Baptist, was an observance of the summer solstice and a vastly popular Catholic holiday in New Orleans. Many of New Orleans voodoo practitioners and followers celebrated St. John's Eve at Marie Laveau's Maison Blanche, or the White House, on Lake Pontchartrain. The festivities were often led by Laveau and attracted white and black people from all over the city. After the Civil War, Anglo-American New Orleans wallowed in the Lost Cause mythology and bemoaned what they considered misrule by northern carpetbaggers, southern scalawags, and black people. Although all walks of life celebrated St. John's Eve in New Orleans, post-Civil War articles painted the holiday as a debaucherous nuisance where Black people went wild. One article in the Commercial Bulletin from 1869 clearly tried to paint newly freed people as unworthy of their citizenship. The author stated that the St. John Eve's celebration consisted of, quote, midnight dances, bathing and eating, together with other less innocent pleasures, making the early summer a time of unrestrained orgies for the Blacks. The writer couldn't pass up the opportunity to paint Black people as unfit for citizenship by stating that, quote, a more youthful hand puts up love filters and makes fetishes for the intelligent freedmen who elect governors and members of Congress out of their own numbers. Right. So it's very tongue in cheek. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, as a side note, this same article went on to announce Marie Laveau's retirement fr from leading the festivities as she was by 1869, by that point, nearing 70 years old. Race relations in New Orleans became untenable when the Crescent City White League, a paramilitary terrorist organization made up of largely Confederate veterans, attempted a coup d'etat to overthrow the Reconstruction Republican state government in 1874. In what became known as the Battle of Canal Street or Battle of Liberty Place, five to 8,000 members of the White League fought the 600 members of the outnumbered Metropolitan Police Force and 3,000 black militiamen. 
The White League stormed the State House in a bloody battle and held it, the Armory, and downtown New Orleans for three days until federal troops arrived and restored the government. When all federal troops were pulled out of New Orleans in 1877, Democrats, or Redeemers as they were called, intent on overturning quote-unquote Negro misrule, as they called it, quickly regained power in the state. Needless to say, race relations became much worse. And we can see how this time of redemption and harsh race relations coincided with anti-voodoo hysteria in the white press. White-owned newspapers from the 1870s through the 1890s rarely missed a chance to put people of African descent in a bad light. In these stories, voodoo was just further evidence of Black people's deficiencies and unworthiness of citizenship. By this point, Marie Laveau was very old. One of the Louisiana Writers Project interviewees, Anita von Verne, who was born in 1860 and grew up on St. Anne Street, remembered her mother taking her to San Luis Cemetery No. 1, where they, quote, saw an old shriveled-up lady sitting by a tomb, end quote. Mrs. von Verne said her mother told her that's Marie Laveau, the voodoo woman. They say she was pretty when she was young, but because of the work she did, when she got old, she was dried up and looked like a witch, end quote. Other interviewees born around the same time described Marie Laveau as a statuesque woman in her 40s. This lends credence to the argument that someone, either Marie Laveau's daughter, also named Marie Laveau, or even somebody else, was claiming to be Marie Laveau and was also practicing voodoo in New Orleans. Marie Catherine Laveau died on June 15, 1881. She was 79 years old. However, many newspaper accounts made out that she was much older, already furthering the myth that somehow she had avoided death for longer than she should have. Some were disparaging. In, quote, Marie Laveau, Death of the Queen of the Voodoos, she was described as the leader of, quote, that curious sect of superstitious darkies who combined the hard traditions of African legends with fetish worship, end quote. A few days later, the New Orleans Times wrote that, quote, Tonight is St. John's Eve, and on the banks of Bayou St. John, all that is left of the old voodoo clan will convene to honor the memory of their late Queen Marie Laveau by a series of drunken orgies around a bonfire, end quote. The New York Times published an obituary for Marie Laveau in late June using a classic 19th century style title that just goes on and on. The title is The Dead Voodoo Queen, Marie Laveau's Place in the History of New Orleans, The Early Life of the Beautiful Young Creole, The Prominent Men Who Sought Her Advice in Society, Her Charitable Work, How She Became an Object of Mystery. That's the whole title, by the way. Uh, This obituary and others insinuated that her power and prestige in the city had less to do with her role as a voodoo priestess and more to do with trickery and mystery. They did admit, however, that Laveau was an intelligent woman, a skilled herbalist, and did lots of charity work in New Orleans. The propaganda of the 1870s through the 1890s had a lot to do with the mythologizing of Marie Laveau. Time moves on, but Marie Laveau was not forgotten, even as the South further entrenched itself in the myth of the lost cause of the Confederacy. In 1891, the city erected a monument to commemorate the Battle of Liberty Place and the heroes who had tried to overthrow the Reconstruction government. In 1893, Congo Square was turned into a shrine of sorts for the Confederacy. It was renamed for the Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard and was designated for white use only, as were most other public spaces throughout the city. 
Much of the Laveau legend was created after her death. It is from these fictionalized novels and vignettes that Laveau was said to be a hairdresser, even though there is no archival record of her having advertised anywhere as such. In 1896, and reprinted throughout the first decades of the 1900s, The Picayune's Guide to New Orleans is the first place where Marie's snake, named Grand Zombie, is mentioned anywhere. According to Long, a lot of the sensationalized Marie Laveau that we have today comes from a man who one would think should have known better. Robert Talent was a participant in the Louisiana Writers Project during the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, which was the first real attempt to collect a massive amount of oral history on Laveau and voodoo in New Orleans. Louisiana Writers Project workers found and transcribed civil and ecclesiastical records relating to Marie, her family, and her associates, which also had to be translated from Spanish and French to English. LWP staff also made copies of 19th century newspaper articles on voodoo and compiled the bibliography of hundreds of others. Perhaps most significantly, field workers interviewed 70 mostly black New Orleanians born between 1853 and 1878, who remembered Marie Laveau or her successor. According to Long, after the shutdown of the Federal Writers Project, the state offices were instructed to transfer all of their data to the Library of Congress. LWP director Lyle Saxon, however, retained the folklore files for his personal use, but he died before he had a chance to undertake the project. That same year, with Saxon's apparent endorsement, Robert Talent published his splashy and sexually titillating Voodoo in New Orleans, replete with lurid takes of nudity, drunkenness, devil worship, snake handling, blood drinking, the devouring of live chickens and dead cats, and interracial sexual orgies. He reworked snippets from the oral histories and made up other interviews when he needed to prove a point and added other quote-unquote facts from previous and mostly untrue writings about Laveau and turned it all into a readable and sensational book. Long argued that Talent's books, The Voodoo Queen and Voodoo in New Orleans, influenced the Laveau legend more than any other writer and shaped the Laveau legend for the rest of the 20th century. It seems that the white press has shaped so much of popular culture's understanding of Marie Laveau and New Orleans voodoo. Voodoo evolved from the religious traditions of enslaved Africans and seemingly thrived during the 18th and early 19th century. However, during and after Reconstruction, voodoo was used to paint people of African descent as unworthy of full citizenship. However, modern scholars and practitioners have rescued Laveau from a sideshow spook tale and seek to position her and her community within their cultural heritage. If you visit New Orleans today, you will experience the Laveau legend in all of its glory. But there are also plenty of opportunities to learn about New Orleans voodoo and the historical context surrounding the religion in New Orleans. Nowadays, you can't visit Laveau's tomb unless you have a family buried in St. Louis No. 1 or you're with a guided tour group. Damage to her mausoleum and those surrounding it was getting to a point where irreparable damage was taking place. Also, in 2013, someone painted her entire tomb a bright bubblegum pink. Restoration took over a year, and now the Archdiocese and New Orleans Catholic Cemeteries, NOCC, no longer allow tourists to enter St. Louis No. 1 Cemetery without a licensed tour guide. 
Laveau excites our imaginations. She's become part of the pantheon of goddess witches, held up in exalted and occasionally kitschy reverence. But like most mythology, there's an ounce of truth and a whole lot of embellishment. Perhaps we'll never know all of the details about Marie Laveau's life, but it's always fun to try. Thanks for listening. Check us out at digpodcast.org. You can find our show notes and transcripts there. Um, You can also join our Facebook group, Dig History Pod Squad. Just search for us and we'll add you. Um, And lastly, if you can and you want to support us, please go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast uh, and follow us on Twitter, dig underscore history. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. I say burials. Burials. Why did I say it so weird? Saint do you Augustine's say burials church? or burials? Or St. Augustine. Okay, I do too. <laughs> Augustine's. It is here where New Orleans. Where, oh my God. Hardened as white New Orleans. (laughs) I thought it was supposed to be pronounced Norlands, Norlandians. Um, Okay. Where young women of color became a place. Place. Right. In English, it would be placey. Okay. Where young women of a play a placey like an interviewee in a placey. Um. A purported charlatan who swindled unsuspecting dupes, dupes, dupes. I'm, I'm in French mode, okay? <laughs> that dupe was very long. <laughs> uh, longest sentence ever. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Actually, it's not. It's not that bad. It starts after unused, so it's actually it's like a Sarah sentence. I'm right. gonna muddle through that. Um, but we are we are feisty today. It. I just feel bad for you having to breathe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, it's we don't normally record like after a day's work. So um okay. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.